Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond. So on this episode, we are going to speak to Avni Doshi. She's the author of Girl in White Cotton. And I love this book. It's about a twisted mother-daughter relationship. And by the end of the book, we don't know whose side to take. Antara, the daughter, or Tara, the mother. And let me just put it out there. I'm nothing like Tara from the book. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And Avni took seven years to write her book. And on this episode, she actually talks about how she did it. And I've been working on my novel for quite some time, Tara. And it was really inspiring to hear. For sure. So here's Avni. Welcome to our podcast, Books and Beyond. And today we have with us the lovely Avni Doshi who has written the critically acclaimed Girl in White Cotton. First of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. So Avni, could you tell us a little bit about Girl in White Cotton just for our listeners who may not have read it? Uh, Sure. Um, Girl in White Cotton is the story of a mother and daughter who have a difficult trying relationship. And the mother is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the daughter, who's an adult, who's married, who's an artist, is now facing this difficult decision of how she's going to look after a mother who never really looked after her. And so there's this interesting play between, you know, maternal roles changing, where now the child is in a position where she has to think about looking after somebody who was supposed to be a good mother to her, but who never really was. So Avni, uh, since your book is set in India and, you know, you were actually raised in the US, we were wondering, uh, did you ever think of writing an immigrant uh, fiction, you know, book or a plot with, you know, uh, with that theme? Um, you know, Yeah, the book is is set in Pune, which is Pune, where, where my mother grew up. But um, and, and I grew up in New Jersey, but I've always admired. There are so many immigrant novels that I've admired. The books by Jhumpa Lahiri or Akhil Sharma is another my, favorite Akhil of mine. Akhil Sharma is one of my favorite writers. He's yeah. incredible. I and mean, Jhumpa what, Lahiri is mine. Okay, <laughs> so I've <laughs> I've named two of your favorites. Okay, great. So yeah, I think we have similar taste. Um, they they've really inspired the way I, I think about novels, but. I think India has always had a really central place in my imagination. And I'm sure, of course, it has for the immigrant novel as well, right? India, the nostalgia for the mother country is is at the center there. But I really wanted to um, kind of be surrounded by by India, by the sights, the smells, the sounds, by the culture. When I was writing this book, and actually, in my 20s, I moved to India. I, I came uh, to work in the art world. And so that's where I actually started writing this book. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, wow. I, was living, I was living in Bandra, actually, where no. we are right now <laughs> recording this. No. And that's uh, where the beginnings of this book made their way to the page. So... That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So how did you, um, so, you know, you mentioned in other interviews that the book is not autobiographical. And we found that really fascinating because a lot of uh, debut novels are in a way very much inspired by the relationships in the author's life. And this, the mother-daughter relationship seems so different from what you've said your own relationship is. So how did you um, sort of construct this story? 
This is such an interesting and I think complicated question because I think to say the book is autobiographical doesn't do justice to the book and doesn't do justice necessarily to my relationship with my mother either. So I I would only say that that there are emotions in my life that have triggered things in this book. There are um, experiences in my life. There are conversations. I think there are definitely some real conversations in here, oh. real interactions <laughs> that have happened. Um, but as you say, it's not autobiographical. I, I grew up in the U.S. My parents, in the book, the character's parents are divorced. My parents are very much together. The narrator has no relationship to speak of with her father. I have a very close relationship with my father. Um, my mother and I, we have our fights, we have our differences, but it's nothing like As like what you've is. read. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and we were curious to know, like, did your mother read the book? And if she did, what did she think of it? So before she read the book, other people read the book and I think reported to her about how terrible and disturbing uh, the mother character was. And so she was really horrified. She sent me a few really angry WhatsApp messages. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> she said, why did you write this? Then at a few mm -hmm. times she, she said to me, you didn't have the right to write this, which mm. I thought was so interesting because I really feel I have ownership over all of my experiences and I have the freedom to write whatever I want. But that almost made me think for a second, if I'm hurting the people around me, do I have the right to tell stories? But, uh, you know, once she read it, I think she liked it. And I think she realized that it wasn't, wasn't her. Yeah. I'm sure she saw herself in the mother in places. I'm sure she saw herself in the daughter. Um, that's another interesting thing that, that I've, I've spoken about before is even me as a person, I'm not just in one character. I see myself in the husband. I see myself in the wife. I see myself in so many of the characters. So I, I, I don't think it's a very clear distinction that can mm. be made. And once she read it, she was okay with it. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, but I think with fiction, like it's an amalgamation of characters and characteristics. You can't really pinpoint, you know, like whether it's really based on a particular person. Yeah, that's yeah, and true. I guess it's always your own experiences that filter through, right? You know, even if it's a piece of fiction, yeah. yeah. It's very interesting. And probably, you know what? It's more fair to say that all the characters are me. So if the mm. mother is a monster, then that's because I'm a monster. It's not really a reflection on my mother. I mm. think. In a sense. Yeah. And since your book is set in uh, Pune, like, you know, we were wondering, is it, did you, uh, you know, draw inspiration from the Osho ashram in any way? Because the ashram reminded us of that. I did draw inspiration from the Osho ashram, even though I've not really been there a lot. I think I've gone once. Actually, I, um, you know, it's very interesting that you chose the ashram as a setting and uh, the narrator goes with her mother uh, when she's a young girl to live with her mother at this ashram. And the mother sort of becomes the lover of uh, the Guruji there. So why did you choose that particular setting for to showcase certain aspects of their relationship? I don't know. You know, sometimes I feel when I'm writing, I'm not making a choice. So much of writing is unconscious. And sometimes even the settings reveal themselves and um, the plot or the character development or the character's relationships, that all kind of evolves on its own. And sometimes I'm not even sure how I get there. 
Um, I think the ashram is so integral a part of Pune, especially where my um, grandmother lives. She lives in Koregao Park and the ashram lane is just there around the corner and it's so beautiful. And, you know, in the monsoon, we would take walks in that lane and they're just these stunning trees. And so in that sense, it was very much in my imagination I, I wish I could almost take credit for this as a really conscious choice. Women from my mother's family have belonged to the ashram oh, over oh, the years. Wow. Yes. In fact, if you watch Wild Wild Country, you will see at least three of my mother's paternal aunts. Oh, wow. In the video, you'll see one of my mom's aunts speaking to Mashila um, in a section from Oregon. So... In that sense, it's very much in my imagination, but I've never been there. I've never really spent time mm. there. Everything I know is kind of a distant fantasy in a sense. And the the parts about the ashram are really a fantasy, kind of, of my own fantasy of what that would be, especially for a child. What What would the ashram be like? Yeah, now that you've mentioned that it's a very unconscious process, like, you know, we love the structure of the book, actually, like the writing is so brilliant. So how did you go about structuring it? Like, you know, the past experiences, the present, like, you know, did you really plot out the novel, outline it? or How was your process? Previous drafts. So this book, it, gosh, um, seven years, eight drafts. I'm sure you've heard we this. Read about that. Yes. Yeah. A lot of people read that and are just so horrified for me. Um, I'm horrified if I think about it because it's it took a lot of work. But I think the mistake I made in the beginning was plotting. I mean, I call it a mistake now because it seems like a mistake in hindsight, but maybe I had to go through that process of plotting and trying to make, you know, the hard and fast of the story lineup. But for me, what really um, brought the whole structure together was the voice of the narrator. I think once I found her voice, then I really had a kind of um, focus. Okay. And there was almost an energy through which, you know, the form of the novel emerged. So we were really fascinated uh, by the narrator and and the voice that you created, as you mentioned. And we read somewhere that you've said that um, to write in first person is actually more freeing. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? Gosh, did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, I think that with the first person there's a kind of depth you can achieve. There's a real intimacy you can achieve that feels very natural for me. Um, it's the way I think I even like to talk to people. And I, I think when you can really go into the perspective of a single character, then everything else becomes a little clear, a little more clear, because you know for sure what that character cannot know. You know what that character is hearing, you know, from other people. So it's hearsay. It's not lived experience. So, for example, my narrator, there are certain things about her mother's life she just cannot know. There are certain things about her grandmother that she cannot know. And that was really interesting to write because, you know, the mother character, who's this monster, Tara, she... We all I know felt so bad when I read that because <laughs> <laughs> that's my name. So. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> 
So yeah, I mean, it was very interesting, um, you know, because in the beginning of the book, we get sucked into Antara's voice and we sort of see the world through our eyes and we believe everything that she's telling us. But then as the narrative unfolds, you don't know what to believe anymore. And you don't know if she's telling us, um, you know, the whole truth or what's the real story behind her mother, her relationship with her grandparents is so beautiful. But as you said, you know, maybe there's some friction there. So what do you, what did you want the reader to take away? Whose side did you want the reader to be on? I definitely wanted the reader to be on Antara's side oh, okay. for, for most of the book. But I wanted by the end, the reader to question themselves and how much you can really trust somebody. Mm-hmm. How much can you really trust what someone's telling you about their own lives when you haven't heard the whole story, when you haven't heard the other person's side. And I know it's so silly, but I have a son and I have a little book called The True Story of the Big Bad Wolf. (laughs) (laughs) And it's told from the the point of view of the big bad wolf. And it's such a compelling, and I think it's actually, I I read it myself when I was like, I don't know, in the second grade or first grade or something, when I was just a kid. And it's so compelling because it actually makes these pigs seem like monsters. (laughs) And the wolf is this, you know, poor guy who has a bit of a cold and that's why he's huffing and puffing. And so it's such a simple thing that we teach to children, yeah. but we ourselves, when we're reading novels or when we're reading the news, and, you know, that was a little bit in the back of my mind because the, the news is so biased today and everything we read is so biased today. And True. we just, you know, if it's told to us with any authority, we just take it without a second thought. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I, I think it's so... We're, we're all so gullible in, in a way. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to really, yeah. you know, point out that there is always another side to the story. Yeah, you, I think you do that really, really well. Um, and it's, I think it's all about perspective. In yeah. Today. yeah. Yeah, I think especially with the last line, like, my God, it was mind blowing. So in the last line, the narrator says, only I can see myself in the mirror. Yeah, like actually that gave us like goosebumps. So uh, did you like plan out the opening line and the closing line of the book, like when you were structuring it? Because we found them to be like, you know, amazing. So in the first line, uh, she says, I would be lying if I said my mother's misery has never given me pleasure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, you know, there's like a, is it, would you call it a cult or it's almost like there's like a, there's a fanaticism in the literary world about opening sentences, isn't there? Yes. Gosh, yes. I know. It's such a thing. I think I had a bit of pressure about that, you know, like to get a really good first sentence in there. Um, I definitely thought a lot about the first sentence. Um, I took my time with it. I think after I wrote the first chapter, I returned to the first sentence and kind of came up with a few variations of it. Um, I think initially the first sentence was quite long. It was almost like a paragraph long. And then I had to kind of cut it up and, uh, you know, rethink, rethink how I wanted it to sound, how musical I wanted it to be, what kind of a rhythm I wanted. Um, The last line was very different. The last line I didn't know was going to be the last line until I got there. And in fact, the last chapter, I didn't know was going to be the last chapter until it was done. I started writing it and I really didn't know what was going to happen. I knew that I wanted all of my characters. At the end of the book, I knew that I wanted all of my characters to be in a room together. 
So I, even when I'm thinking about my character, like how I'm uh, developing the characters or what their relationship is or what kind of dialogue I'm going to write for them, I always imagine them in a room together, even if technically in the story, they're not in a room together. And it seems like a lot of the book was so well thought through and a lot of the book came to you and then you iterated. And we know that you studied art history and then you went on to work in the art world. So why writing and how did you decide that, you know, you're going to write this story um, and how did that process go about for you? Um, I always love to read fiction and I, I love art history, but I'm not really sure why I studied art history. I probably just should have studied, you know, literature and creative <laughs> writing. But I didn't really believe that people were writers. I mean, it was just always such an abstract thing to me in my mind. You know, I, I knew that, you know, Marquez was this writer who I loved. And, you know, there were other writers who I admired so much when I was much younger. And I, I just didn't think it was a real profession. <laughs> like, I just thought it was something that these geniuses must do and they live in some magical place. And it just seemed so far from, from my reality. Um, how did I get to writing? I'm not sure. I did it privately in okay. secret. Mm -hmm. I just started writing little passages and fragments. Um, and for me, writing, it comes from a really unconscious place. If I try to sit down and really think through it too much, if I'm nervous or if I'm anxious or if I'm thinking of deadlines and word counts and I have some like adrenaline rush happening, then it's just rubbish and I have to throw it all away. Oh. But um, I think writing from the dream state is really powerful. I think you know, if you can write in bed as soon as you've woken up, if you can just open your eyes and you just have that little maybe bridge to your unconscious, um, unconscious, I think that's like a great place to write from. I think writing when your nervous system is too switched on is always a big mistake for me. If you can enter a more parasympathetic state where you're kind of rest and digest and, and you're calm, that's you know, I have a writing teacher actually based in New York. Her name is Madeline Kent. She teaches something called sense writing. It's really interesting. She talks about how the brain loves learning in a parasympathetic state. So when, you're, when your body is kind of relaxed and resting, your brain begins to do things that it likes. So for example, your brain loves to differentiate. So feel the difference between the right side of your body and the left side of your body. You know, feel how if you're lying on the floor, what kind of a shape your body would make on the floor. That's very interesting. And it's so interesting because it's a lot to do with movement and it's a lot to do with just releasing and surrendering and allowing the brain to do what it likes. But it's incredible because it's almost like you're gaining some kind of access to the unconscious mind in that way. And so I think... What's been really special to me with writing is that I haven't really come at it in a very academic way. I mean, I've done a writing fellowship and all of that, and I've taken courses on craft and that kind of thing. But I try to just keep it as unstructured and unstudied in a sense as possible and just let my brain and body do what feels good. What it likes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know that's a bit strange, but look up sense writing. Yeah, um, that's something yeah, new yeah, that we learned today. It's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I, I know it's probably not 
the mainstream way people go, people have their writer's rules. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Zadie Smith has a beautiful set of rules. And you can look online, I mean, for all the brilliant writers who have their do's and don'ts. But I found that that becomes so restricting. And I don't know if there's really a right way, but this way works for me. I've also been told that, you know, one shouldn't ignore the ideas that you get when you're in a subconscious state, like if you've just woken up, you know, in that dream state that you have. We were wondering, did you have readers or writers in the family? And like, how were you introduced to books growing up? I don't think I have any big readers in my family. I think nobody really likes books much. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, nobody. nobody. My mom has a nice bookshelf with some beautiful hardbound books, but I don't know if anyone's ever read them. She's a little OCD, so they're all kind of color-coded in a lovely, aesthetically pleasing way, but I'm not sure they've ever been opened. Um, I don't know. I Maybe I wasn't very athletic in school. You know, when it was time for physical education, I would say I'm not feeling so I well. <laughs> Oh, I, have, I, I have my period or something, yeah. you know, um, you know, and the gym teacher, the physical education teacher was probably thinking, what, the third time this month? I don't understand. <laughs> anyway, so I would always be in the nurse's office and thinking, you know, sitting there with a book and excusing myself from any physical activity. I was kind of bookish, I think. Yeah. And, and that's really, um, you know, I think Michelle and I, both of us use books as a way to escape into different worlds. And yeah, absolutely. I think that's the magic of books for all of us book lovers. And also we found it uh, really, um, I think, uh, mature of you that, you know, despite winning, the uh, you know, an award for your manuscript, you still went through so many drafts. So, I mean, can you like talk about validation that a writer seeks, you know, despite winning awards and contests, you just still have to make sure that your work is like the best you can put out there. You've really hit the nail on the head. But I want to just clarify, I was not mature at all. I When I wrote the first draft, and then I won this prize, the Tibor Jones um, South Asia Prize, it was a, an amazing thing that happened. It was, you know, it happened at this literary festival in, in Kolkata. And there was all this press and attention. And then I got um, a, a literary agent through that. And and I just thought I was incredible and the best writer. And oh my God, I'm so natural at this. And I must be so talented, obviously. And I mean, what a rude awakening. Because it, Why? Because it was really rubbish. I mean, it was very much a first draft. But and how did you like come to that realization is what we wanted to know. Yeah, I, I think it was at, at uh, you know, first of all, my agent at the time was very kind but also very firm about the fact that I really needed to do some work on it. She saw a lot of potential, but she said, this is definitely not ready. Oh. And so that was a bit of a shock. I said, what do you mean? Oh, you mean a, a few line edits? You mean like some, you know, spelling mistakes? Well, what kind of editing could you possibly want me to do? I had no idea that writing is rewriting. I didn't oh. know that writing is mm -hmm. editing. But that is what writing is. And as you mentioned, it's a constant learning process. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So now that you're done with uh, your first book, it's successful, uh, you know, it's critically acclaimed. We really wanted to know what you're writing next. And we also did read somewhere that you are working on a collection of short stories. No, yeah. no. Oh, dear. No, no. <laughs> not a collection of short stories. Okay. I'm trying to write a short story. Oh. And I just, I think I just don't know how, to, are there people who just don't know how to write short stories? <laughs> Is it possible that there's such a thing? 
Um, but I've heard that some writers are more comfortable with certain forms. Like I think maybe you're more comfortable with the novel form. I think I, I don't, you you might be right. For some reason, even if I begin with kind of an idea for a short story, I I go off in so many directions. And you know, I think a short story requires a kind of focus um, hmm. that I'm not sure that I have. So, <laughs> so what are you working on next? So, so at the moment, you're right. I'm working on a short story. I'm trying to get one right. Um, I'm hoping a novel. You know, the problem is I worked on this for so long that this narrator's voice is really in my head. Uh, so every new thing I try to begin, I, I keep finding Anthara there with me. And so she's kind of haunting my my writing life <laughs> wow. at the moment. Yeah, yeah. She's kind of, she doesn't leave me alone. So um, I think I also need a kind of, a, I mean, what do you call a literate, a kind of writing detox? Is there a term like that? I kind of need to just you know, be refreshed to start again. Yeah, I, I mean, think a sort of unlearning, like, yeah, I had, I had read this somewhere that more than learning, I think unlearning helps you. So, you know, what? when you said uh, writing detox, we had a couple of quick questions that we wanted you to answer sort of in a rapid fire sure. way. So what do you do when you're not writing? And what is your stress buster? My stress buster? Um, when I'm depressed because the writing isn't going well, I'll watch like hours of reality TV, like Brain Dead, and eat like junk food in front Love of that. the TV. <laughs> yeah, so that's what I'll do. That's kind of it's not really a stress buster, but it's just like I'm so down because my writing's going so badly that I just don't know what else to do. Um, playing with my baby. Oh, that that's a different kind of stress. So it distracts me from the <laughs> from the book stress. Yeah. Yeah, and do you have any favorite places that you write at now that you're based in Dubai? So I had a lovely writing room, which is now the nursery. So I don't get to write there anymore. But uh, it's terrible. I sit in bed oh. with my laptop. It's so bad for my posture. I have a kind of frowny look on my face. And I'm like just typing away. And it, it's it's not glamorous. It's not really that that writing life at all. It's just wherever there's space, really. Any two books that you want to recommend to our listeners? I love, the, I, I don't know if many people in, in India are familiar with Sheila Hedy, but the no, book, no. So, so her book, Motherhood, which goes into the question of whether or not to have children, but told in just the most surprising and beautiful way, that book just, I find so moving. And then Rachel Cusk's trilogy, yeah, I've heard. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, it's. I think it's Outline Transit and Kudos. It's fabulous. She's fabulous. So those are two writers that I, I have, them out, yeah. have by my bedside at all times. I have so many more. Maggie Nelson. I can, I can give you a whole list. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is that one tip would, that you would like to give, like, you know, aspiring writers who want to write their debut work? And if it's like, you know, not autobiographical? it's not autobiographical. I don't think you should get very hung up on autobiographical or not. I don't think that matters. I think try to be honest and truthful. Um, try to look at, look at what you don't want to look at because there's always that um, shadow when you're writing. There's always that, that thing that's kind of opaque and dark and you'll know you'll know it's there because you'll you'll notice you keep writing around it. Mm-hmm. You don't really get to the heart of it. You're, it's kind of this um, thing that you're trying to ignore. 
It's probably something really uncomfortable, probably something you don't think you have the permission to say. So I would recommend that you keep returning there, keep trying to inch closer, because I think eventually you find a way to gain access to that. And that's usually where the heart of a novel is. So it would be great, Avni, now if you could read out a passage from your book for our listeners. Sure. Sometimes I refer to Ma in the past tense, even though she is still alive. This would hurt her if she could remember it for long enough. Dilip is her favorite person at the moment. He is the ideal son-in-law. When they meet, expectations don't fly in circles around their heads. He doesn't remember her as she was. He accepts her as she is and is happy to reintroduce himself if she forgets his name. I wish I could be that way, but the mother I remember appears and vanishes in front of me, a battery-operated doll whose mechanism is failing. The doll turns inanimate. The spell is broken. The child does not know what is real or what can be counted on. Maybe she never knew. The child cries. I wish India allowed for assisted suicide like the Netherlands. Not just for the dignity of the patient, but for everyone involved. I should be sad instead of angry. Sometimes I cry when no one else is around. I'm grieving, but it's too early to burn the body. It's haunting. <laughs> yeah. There's so many lines like this that you just remember in the book uh, and that stay with you. It's amazing. Yeah. So it was just amazing talking to you, Avni. Like, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, like I'm sure our listeners will, you know, have a lot of takeaways from this conversation, like, you know, aspiring writers, readers, etc. Thank you so much yeah. for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I've always wanted to know the kind of hard work that goes behind a stellar work of fiction. And I think after this conversation, I've got a few insights. And next time, we will be talking to another inspiring personality, Arsha Satar. I can't wait to find out how she translated the Ramayana and even more how she started the Sangam House, the writing residency. Yeah, she's India's greatest translator. So be sure to tune in next week. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. We're at Bound India on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. See you next time. <laughs>